Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Gene Bresson. I'm Khadija Booth-Watkins. The COVID pandemic has resulted in uh, depression, anxiety, stress, loneliness, and increased suicidal thinking in the general pop population, but particularly in youth. Importantly, these emotional problems have been increasing prior to COVID. So actually we came into COVID uh, with these things on the rise, and now we're facing a really really facing a perfect storm. Uh, so the negative impact on physical and emotional health has taken a far greater toll on historically underserved communities, including people of color, immigrants, and those living with significant disparities, racial, economic, housing, access to care, availability of the internet, demands for homeschooling and more. But today we want to address how community health centers can help with some of these problems, and we're delighted to have an old friend, <laughs> Mary Lyons Hunter, who's the unit chief of behavioral health for the MG Chelsea Health Center. Mary's led this unit for over 20 years and knows the impact of her town, Chelsea, Massachusetts, largely Latino, clearly underserved. Uh, just a brief intro on Mary. Uh, and Mary, you don't have to blush, but you can if you like. And I'm sure I will. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, she won the MGH Department of Psychiatry 2020 Mentorship Award. She was honored with the clinical award for her outstanding work as supervisor and mentor while caring for the marginalized and underserved residents of Chelsea. Quote, during the COVID-19 epidemic, she has again led by example, wrote one colleague. Another quote, as she says, I wouldn't do anything I didn't ask my staff to do, which meant she volunteered weekly as a clinician at the, at the Revere Quality Inn, where individuals testing positive for the coronavirus could safely self-quarantine, in addition to her myriad new administrative responsibilities. So, you know, I've, I've known Mary. She's, she's like, you know, some chiefs sit in their offices. Mary's got boots on the ground. She's out in the neighborhood. The folks come into the Chelsea Health Center. She knows every single parent, caregiver, guardian, kid, you know, uh, by first name. So I, I can't think of a wiser, more experienced community mental health leader to address some of these issues. So welcome, Mary. Gene, I am blushing, and I thank you very much for uh, for your very kind words. Um, it, it's... It, as you know, because you know me so well, I mean, my passion has always been to working in the community. And, and despite the fact that I've been there for 22 years, my passion has not waned. Um, my passion might be a little tired right now, um, but my commitment to the community is as strong as it ever was, if not more so, given what our community has been through. Um, so thank you. Yeah. So... As we typically do, let's begin with how this week has been. How, how's it been for you, Mary? Uh, extraordinarily busy. Um, I, I think I think busy almost, do we have a busy exponential? Um, it's, it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of demand. There's a lot of need and there's a lot of demand and we work really hard to respond to it. So that's how my week has been. It's already been a, how many hours? Let's see, 12, eight, eight, 16 hour week and it's Tuesday at three. So 
um, that's what it is. Khadija, how about you? I, I would echo the same. It's been unusually busy, and I'd have the same busy for the next couple of days to the end of the week. But I did sit at dinner with my son, and we made plans for the holiday. We planned our menu and all the things that make us happy again. So that, that brought me back to uh, a place of zen. Um, but it's a busy week. How about you, Jane? It's been busy for me too. Uh, uh, with all the stuff that's been going on around COVID, uh, the family, um, you know, frequent tests. I mean, I have a bunch of grandchildren who are continually texting about everything from the loaf of bread they made to the wonderful dish they're serving for their kids to worries about COVID. Um, and I got a new puppy two days ago. <laughs> and I'll tell you, you know, I've been through four kids and now seven grandchildren. I forgot what it's like taking care of a baby. <laughs> but she's, uh, she's a darling. What kind of puppy? Well, it's a, she is an Australian Labradoodle. Adorable, I'm sure. <laughs> so she's kind of a mutt but a mutt that's been a kind of a designed mutt. Uh, yeah, not, not really, like a designer mutt. <laughs> a designer mutt, yeah. But you know, my last dog, uh, Bear, died at 15 and a half, and he was a cockapoo, who was, I think, the first designer dog. And you know, I could not have done the therapy that I've done here in this office without Bear. He was, in fact, before they asked me how I was doing, they asked where Bear was and, and how Bear was. And I can't, pets do something. They release oxytocin, they're, they're wonderful. So, Nisha, you wanna start with some questions for Mary and we can take- Sure, sure. Thank you again, Mary, for joining us. Um, let's just start, maybe the first question I can ask you is, can you describe the conditions and the disparities in Chelsea, particularly during this COVID season and, and how it compares to other underserved communities? Khadija uh, and, and Jean, thank you again for inviting me to speak. I, um, I'm, I, I, I like the opportunity to, to talk about our, what's happening in our community. Um, the conditions currently, so just contextually, Chelsea is a suburb, a, suburb, a, a city right, side, right outside of Boston and we are 1.6 square miles and one about approximately 1.1 square mile that's livable. And in there, in there is a, uh, a population of about 40,000 uh, documented residents and an estimated 15,000 undocumented res residents. And at one count, someone said there were about 18 languages spoken in that 1.1 square mile. So what I can assure you is it's very high density living and it's very multicultural. Um, our population, you know, interestingly enough, during COVID, we're, we're then deemed, you know, the people that are able, that are working as essential workers, which meant that they had to go to work. And they're the people cleaning offices, they're the cleaning hotels, working in restaurants, driving, you know, cabs, driving buses. Um, it's also a city where, and I couldn't find this exact metric, but I've been told this many times, it's a city in, um, in Massachusetts that has the least amount of car ownership. So all of these folks, um, take public transportation to get to and from work in their essential working. Um, 
So we were very, very hard hit. Um, we were just about as hard hit as New York City in terms of the numbers um, and the percentage of population that uh, Chelsea and Navajo Nation sort of rise to the top of the impact in terms of, of rates of infection. Um, what COVID has done has really laid bare the disparities around technology, um, safety net programs that really are lacking in underserved communities. I mean, we've always known it, but COVID just sliced it open and laid it right out in a very profound way. Um, so disparities around technology is enormous, particularly now that telehealth is so important. So all the efforts that we've done through the years to be sure that people that can access adequate health care in underserved communities now is being cut off. Um, I, I would remit, be remiss to say that one other impact besides technology in terms of accessing care is you know, the change in the public charge this past year. So we already had a population pre-COVID of patients that were concerned about accessing healthcare, accessing using their MassHealth or their MassHealth Limited um, because of the concern that it would be held against them when they went for citizenship. Um, so now we put the overlay of COVID and the lack of technology, the lack of even Wi-Fi. So we had kids, and we still have kids that can't connect to school because even the hotspots won't connect because there's not enough towers in the city. So it's not just, oh, I don't have a tablet. Um, so, and then all the other normal social determinants of health that you see uh, regularly, but just then get magnified, such as food, um, you know, access to medications, being able to get your prescriptions, um, you know, access to school, access to learning. Um, one of the biggest issues, believe it or not, was diapers. And up until a couple of weeks ago, the, the city was spending between three and $5,000 a week still on diapers. Um, during quarantine, We've, we estimated that the health center got approximately 10,000 diapers donated that we weekly then had trucked into a warehouse that could be distributed to the, to the city. Um, so those were some of the disparities. Some of that continues. Uh, we've, there's still been food distribution, but the city of Chelsea also spending thousands of dollars a week along with some private donors um, they've moved to offering this Chelsea Eats card. So instead of spending the money on trying to do distribution and creating these long lines, uh, for a period of time, we had the National Guard in there for, um, I think 16, no, not quite, about 12 weeks. Yeah. And there were three, 4,000 people in line. So you know we're creating a, a spreader, a potential spreader event. So they're moving towards this Chelsea Eats card, which is a, a, a new concept, and it's one that everyone's watching to see, uh, you know, see how that works. And then there are still some food banks that are open and, and, and are running. So, so what are, what are the behavioral health impacts on on the young people and and their families in that community? Because it sounds like it's far, far reaching. It's far reaching, Khadijah. Uh, it and it's it's far reaching. It's almost crisis proportion. 
Um, and we have some very, very sick kids and, and families that are struggling. Um, anxiety, depression, anyone with a trauma reaction, uh, we're finding that their trauma has been reactivated by this event. So we have a lot of people being referred for PTSD that were able, they probably had PTSD, but they were managing, but now they're not. Uh, we're seeing an increase in hospitalizations in both children, adolescents, and adults. And the reason I mention adults, even though this is kid-focused, is we look at the whole family. So what happens when? Uh, the family stress is completely off the charts. Uh, kids not going to school, kids refusing to go to school, kids too anxious to go to school, parents trying to feed their kids, trying to make rent, the eviction order has been lifted. You know, you just st start stacking up all of these and now you have incredible family stress and um, a lot of conflict, which is difficult. Um, I mean, it's difficult on the best of days, but I can tell you uh, many of our families, because even though we're an underserved community, the rents are extraordinarily high. So what many families do is they'll get a three bedroom and there'll be three families living in this three bedroom house, each in one, each family in one bedroom, sharing the, the kitchen and whatever common space there might be. Um, which is why we needed the isolation hotel during the height of the pandemic. So we already have high density stress, parents not working, how am I gonna feed my kids? That other family, you know, weird Uncle Harry is a drinker. <laughs> you know, you, you, you have a, a, a situation that is just untenable. So we're, we're, our referrals are up by probably about 60%. And we were a high volume clinic anyway. And they're probably up about 60. We're getting about 35 to 40 referrals a week. Wow. So, so Mary, you know, you've been, you've been in this, in this uh, situation for a long time. And, and I think I remember the last time I came to Chelsea, you mentioned that Chelsea had a big fire and a lot was burned down. And then when the housing was rebuilt, it was built in an unaffordable manner so that folks that lived in the community and wanted to stay in the community were forced because of the lack of affordability of housing. Is that, mm -hmm. so, so they were- Absolutely, there was a conflagration. It's one of the few conflagrations that have happened in this in the United States. And uh, the bulk of the space that was, was burned is now commercial space. However, the remaining pieces of commercial space that might've been older that survived have now been con converted into high-end housing. Part of the problem, part of the reason for that was the addition of the Silver Line, which is one of the buses that runs now directly into the city of Boston without having to go over the bridge. Because um, we are connected to the city of Boston by the largest bridge in New England. So now you can get down to the financial district on one bus. You couldn't do that before because we were not connected to the, the subway transportation system. So because of that, we now have a lot of very high-end housing, which has driven the rest of the housing market up with landlords hoping to get those people. Uh, 
but that's a whole, you know, housing is a whole other issue. It's a problem. Housing is just a problem, period. But it's, it's not unlike a lot of Boston where people just don't want to leave their communities. I mean, folks have probably been in Chelsea for a very long time and it, it's home for them, right? So, so Exactly. And they're working in downtown cleaning the hotels and cleaning office buildings and for them to find someplace affordable, say, somewhere up on the North Shore, Lowell, Hayville, the amount of money it would take for them to commute to their minimum wage jobs doesn't make sense. So, so let me ask you something. So, so uh, given that there are communities, well, every community is unique, but um, as somebody who's head of a behavioral health unit in a, in a place like this, what can you and your staff do to help facilitate access to needed care? Because obviously these kids and families need it. <clears throat> so what we've been trying to do is uh, trying to get very creative and trying to look at, um, I mean, I feel like we've always been creative in providing care to a community that, you know, traditional mental health care doesn't always fit. So we, we've always tried to be flexible, but I think we've taken it to a new level, for example. Um, so things like creative interventions, we are trying to, and working to look for some, uh, hopefully in the next month or so, we're going to be piloting a program using online um, intervention. It's a research project that we've been working on, an online intervention um, for kids with anxiety. So if that works, then that's going to be great. We, we're looking to roll that out even further. Um, we're looking at the referrals coming in for kids, for young kids, ages six and under. And we're saying, okay, a lot of it is the environment that the stress of the parent, you know, the parents are stressed, the kids are reacting. So instead of us trying to do a Zoom with a five-year-old, let's get an in-home team in and let's just try to cool down the family. Um, and then from there we can think about, okay, does this kid have something that we need to follow up on? Um, we're in the process of developing a, what I'm calling our COVID toolbox, um, uh, intervention, sort of brief interventions that are psychoeducationally driven and, um, strategy driven. So outside of normal, a normal 10 week CBT protocol or, um, you know, any kind of psychodynamic protocol or, or approach, we're looking at it as a pro from a problem solving because many of the referrals are people's anxiety are reactive to, I can't go out, I can't see my family, my connections, I can't see my friends. So let's provide some education about what is actually happening for you in your body and why this is happening and what are some strategies that we can replace your former ones with. So we're looking at possibly a two session, you know, two-session intervention, and let's see how that works with some of my psychoeducation. Now, I was going to say that was a great lead-in to another question I had around education and, and the community. This is already a community that's stretched, like you said, on, on, a, on a normal day, and now you bring in COVID. They need support, and they also need a lot of education. And so I'm just curious to know, how, do you, how are you disseminating information to this population? Um, like what, what modalities or what, what methods are you using to get them information so that they can be educated and, 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 and I would imagine that would make them feel a little bit more comfortable as well, just know, having more knowledge about what's going on. 
Deja, that's a really good question, and it's it's a hard one. Um, we have done some uh, roundtables along with pediatrics and put it on social media. We've done a number of different um, videos that we put on social media, on the Chelsea website, et cetera, around educating families, things to think about. And I think we need to, to start doing those again, uh, which would be really an important thing for us to start doing. It's hard because of the lack of technology in some cases. Uh, but what we are doing is there was an incident under the, the city's incident command, there was a, um, a mental health and trauma response team. And we met weekly, at times twice weekly, and we still meet. And it involves obviously the, the health center, but also all of the other grassroots organizations in the community. And they're bringing forth, what do we need? What do we need to do? Because they're out there talking to families as are we and we're coming together as a group on a regular basis to share resources, but also to share struggles and problem solve around that. Um, I can give you one example that it became, we became aware that if one parent, for example, had COVID, what happens if the other parent gets sick? What happens to the children? What do we do for a substitute caregiver? So on this group, we worked with a legal team we work with DCF, that DCF would accept this legal document and as long as somebody you know, wasn't an ax murderer. We then worked with the families and trained other people in the community to work with families to help them identify a caregiver and sign the document. So that, that took some stress off. We had a document that was legally bound that you know, you know, auntie will take the kids or my, most of them don't, didn't have family. My friends, this friend, I trust to take my children. So. Those were the kind. Those were and are the kinds of things that we continue to do with the community. Absolutely. So when I go to my doctor's office, I, they're usually like pamphlets and and things on the wall. And I would, cause I would imagine the the electronic, um, like the things you put online, and and, and those kinds of things are, are limited because of the technology. Do you guys use those kinds of things? And and I guess my other question would be. If so, like, what's the is, is there an issue around literacy, or maybe there's an issue around having things in multiple languages? Because you earlier you said there were like at least eighteen languages in the community. We have uh, on site in Chelsea. We have interpretation in fourteen languages on site. Uh, it, it, getting information out is a problem. It's a problem, and that's why we were doing our own little podcasts, our our, our roundtable um, discussions. Um, we were doing, we did some wellness videos around yoga and psychoeducation around wellness. And we probably need to get back doing more of them, but it's very hard to disseminate information. How, how helpful has it been to kind of work with local organizations? Uh, you know, the Boys and Girls Clubs, the YMCA, um, La Roca. I mean, there are a number of organizations in Chelsea. Are they helpful to the to you and in your mission and is there any way of uh, that you're connecting with those groups yes gene we throughout the pandemic um or the start of the pandemic we have worked with them and we rely heavily on each other uh for resources for even development okay this is a problem nobody's doing this who, who can take this on the chelsea collaborative has been amazing um green roots has been amazing uh, the church, the faith communities, 
have also, DCF has been fantastic. So we all have sat on this call um, to identify what do we need to do and how can we do it together? Um, or you know, how can we divide and conquer if, it, if that's what needs to happen? I, I don't know how you can work in a community without having those connections. Uh, I think there's too much lost without having the connections to the other organizations in your in your community. It's just, you just can't. And for the listening audience, DCF is the Department of Children and Families. Correct. Sorry. Thank you. The, state, the state organization. Yeah. So being connected to these organizations makes a huge impact in your ability to do your work. And, and, and usually there's a process through which you gain trust of the organizations. How do, how do you go about that process? Well, I think that um, I think that the fact that our health center has been there for about 50 years is a, a really wonderful institutional transference to our community and um, from our community. But also, you can't you, you can't try to embed your yourself into the community at the start of a pandemic. I would assume that any group working in the community would be talking to some of the leaders. You know, what is it that you need? I mean, we're trying to provide healthcare. We're trying to provide programs um, that are to better the health of, of the community. But you can't always assume that you're going to know exactly what that is. You're only going to know what you know. And it's most important to learn what other people are learning that they might not tell us. So I think that is pandemic or not pandemic. It's, it's something that's, that's critical if, if you're that committed to serving an underserved community. And, and um, for those centers that are um, uh, not as well established as you, I mean, you, you're, you're trusted by members of this community. I mean, what I've heard from many community centers is, you know, it takes a long time to be trusted by the folks who are living around you, and especially with the healthcare system. I mean, there's ample reason for, for people of color and, uh, uh, you know, given the disparities, to distrust the healthcare system, we won't get into that now. But, but you've earned you and your staff have earned a huge amount of trust over time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what would you recommend for folks that have not had that long-established connection with the community? What can folks do to actually make inroads? Well, Jean, I would say the number one thing to do is to listen and listen to what people are telling you, but go out of your way. I did, I have, go out of your way. Go meet the superintendent of schools. Go find out who's the head of behavioral health for your schools, who's your chief social worker. Go and meet people at the Boys and Girls Club. What are you doing? What are you seeing? Is there something we could do to collaborate? Go and talk to your grassroots organizations. Uh, go and talk to your faith base. I mean, I know the ministers at the churches. Uh, they know me, and it's not because they read about me in the newspaper. It's because I make myself go to meetings. I believe, uh, this sounds very trite, but I believe in getting, trying to get invited to as many meetings as I can, particularly in the community, even though it might not be convenient, because A, I always learn something, and B, I get to meet new people, and they get to see me. They get to know that I'm not sitting in an office that I want to know what's happening in their church. I want to know what's happening at St. Luke's. I want to know what's happening at, at St. Rose. 
And they know that if they have something that I need to know that they can call me. But that's not going to happen unless I go to meetings, unless I go and find these people. They're not going to find me. They're too busy. But I feel it's incumbent upon me to find them. That, that must be huge to be able to see your face and to, to sense that you really care about what it is they need as opposed to assuming what they need. Um, that, that has to be huge in order to, to really build that foundation of trust. Well, Khadija, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, then, then the challenging part is, is how do you take that back and translate it into a medical model? And, and that's, you know, that's another conversation for another day. You know, how do you take what you can reasonably do? I mean, we are a hospital. We are a hospital system. We deliver care that's paid for. How do you then take it and translate it so that you're giving the right care culturally sensitive, culturally appropriate, and, and meeting the needs of the patients in front of us that are coming from that community. That's another conversation. Yeah. So um, we have to wind down, but Mary, are there, are there anything that we have not asked you that you've learned over your 22 years in Chelsea that, that you can share with other leaders of community health centers uh, who are listening in? I, I think we touched upon most things, Jean. Um, listen, listen to people. Find people, find, find the informal leaders in your community. The leaders are not gonna be the mayor. I mean, the mayor's great. I mean, the city manager knows me, I know him. Um, he can knows to call me. He, all of, you know, and other leaders. Uh, but find that you're informal leaders because they're the ones that really know what's going on. And listen and listen and build relationships with them. Doesn't mean you have to go to a meeting every week. You might show up once a quarter or you know, find ways to engage. Uh, mental health people, we're supposed to be really good at engagement, will engage with your community. And think outside the box. The things we learned in school are all really important, but when you try to apply it to the community, you have to edge it a little bit. The edges, the edges have to grow. So, um... In winding down, there's so much to talk about, and we hope that you'd come back. But what I want to remind our listeners is to take a look at the media list uh, posted with this episode. Uh, we've included some of the resources and many other things Mary spoke about in this conversation. And, and Chelsea is just one example, but I think an excellent example of, uh, of a community that's been under massive stress for a very long period of time uh, and has done a great service to folks in need. So as we wind things up, we typically at the end uh, ask, what in the news has struck you this week? Mary? Oh, good Lord. <laughs> How politically correct do I need to be, Jean? You can, you can be as politically correct or incorrect as you like. <laughs> so yes, yesterday, yesterday morning on my private Twitter feed, that it's like my nom de guerre, um, uh, the, the tweets coming out of the White House absolutely put me right over the edge and set my week off in a bad way. Um, so the news coming off of Twitter is very, continues to be very um, concerning. Kandisha, how about you? Yeah, all I could do was sigh as well. Um, I, I guess what struck me the most over the course of in the news is, is that how long it takes to count. Like, I just didn't know that it just 
takes that long to, to count and to make a decision. So that to me that we're still doing this doing this process is is, is uh, stands out to me. What about you? Anything anything that caught your attention in the news? Oh geez. Well, we we can't we can't avoid being political now. But uh, I guess um, the um, the contrast between uh, the incoming administration and the current one is so dramatic. I mean, uh, having folks who've been through so much and who have so much wisdom and make the right choices. I mean, when they chose the uh, the COVID task force, uh, I happen to have met uh, three or more of them. I couldn't have been happier with the choices that, that you know, um, Biden and Harris made in terms of, you know, leading the way. So it, it's, it's, it's a tough time. It's going to take a long time for us to, to, to mend the wounds of this country. But I do think that um, it's very, re it's, 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 I, I have not been reassured for a long time, but I felt very reassured with this move. And I, I think that's, that's a hopeful sign for the future. So thanks everybody for listening. Uh, and if you have any comments or questions, please feel free to contact us. Uh, and um, we're here. And, and Mary, I hope you'll come back and give us an update. Maybe would love to. In four or five months about how Chelsea's been doing and how you've come through all of this. I'd be happy to. Thank you. Thanks. And thanks for being here. Uh, so uh, I'm Gene Bresson. I'm Khadija Watkins. And I hope that our conversation will help you have yours. See you next time, everyone. I've asked a lot of kids through the years, what's your vision? You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? What's your vision for the future? And they look at you like, huh? Huh? They don't know how to answer that. You know, teenagers say, well, I guess I'll just go to work at Market Basket. I mean, what are you talking about future? They don't have one. They don't feel like they have one. Yeah. But we're at the end of the pipeline. The pipeline starts in kindergarten. <laughs> it starts right. in kindergarten when, you know, someone can have a vision and say, hey, I can do that. Right. I can be that. I, you know, it's going to be a struggle, but I can do that.